Isn't that awesome? Kelsey wrote that. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> beautiful song about finding wisdom in the push and pull of life, where we can be grounded. And today we're finishing up this series, Smarter, Faster, Stronger, Wiser. And uh, we're also celebrating baptism, as you saw. And maybe some of you here today, as I'm speaking, are going to feel that nudge from God. Like today's the day for you to go public with your faith, if you never have. And you'll have a chance to afterwards. But I want to wrap up this series talking about wisdom where we started. What is wisdom? And you know, it's easy to see what wisdom is not, right? Uh, like a London newspaper gave John Bloor uh, the rubber seat award when he mistook a, a, a tube of rubber cement for his hemorrhoid cream. Not wise, right? And wisdom is not something we're born with. You have to l pursue wisdom. Like when I was a kid, you know, unlike my parents told me, don't play with fire, we went and played with fire and made this endless fire out of a Varsol can in the woods behind our house and spilled it and set a three-alarm fire. Fortunately, we didn't burn any houses down. But did I tell you kids are not born wise? And, and, it, and we didn't learn either. Middle school, we're making chlorine bombs back in the same woods, and one goes off in my face and blinds me for three months. The doctors didn't know if I'd see. Did I say middle school kids are especially not born wise? <laughs> if you're a kid, learn from a fool. Don't do that. Seek wisdom. We have to seek wisdom. James, Jesus' half-brother in, in the Bible, talks about what wisdom is and what it isn't. James 3.13, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are unearthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. James says, there, there is a wisdom of the world that sparks jealous comparison and selfish ambition, but that's not God's wisdom. And if you just stop and think about it, you know, think about what we see in our country. America is arguably the most, uh, you know, educated, wealthy uh, farthest along society really in history and yet we still don't have wisdom for living because if you look at surveys most Americans say one of their top three goals is to have a family that will last but half don't nobody sets out to become a, a slave and addicted but probably a third of people face some addiction nobody tries to lose control of their anger or their sexual desires, and yet 25% of our kids grow up having been sexually or physically abused by age 18. Nobody want, or everybody wants contentment, and yet 98% of Americans say they still don't have enough, but we have 95% more than all humanity. We desperately want peace, and yet anti-anxiety medication is still the best-selling. We need wisdom on how to live. But how? Well, the first thing is we've got to evaluate where did you learn how you're living now? Because all of us learned how to live. But we're not always aware of who we learned from. 
Dallas Willard, who was the chairman of the philosophy department at USC, said this once. One thing is sure, you are somebody's disciple. You learned how to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions to this rule, for human beings are just the kind of creatures that have to learn and keep on learning from others how to live. A disciple is just an apprentice, someone who studies under another and learns from them how to do something. And part of wisdom is reflecting on who did I learn how to live from? And it might be a person that you didn't even like, but how you can tell is the fruit of your life. By looking at the fruit of your life and what others say, you can tell who did I learn to live from? Where did you learn wisdom for living? Could be a lot of different places. Maybe some of you say, well, I just learned from me or the internet. I searched the internet for wisdom. You know what I found? 73 million websites. That's overwhelming. I mean, how would you even decide what to start reading, right? And uh, I looked at some of the wisdom. It's entertaining, but questionably helpful. Uh, Like this. When everything is coming your way, you're in the wrong lane. Or how about this one? The sooner you fall behind, the more time you'll have to catch up. To think about that for a second. Or never underestimate the power of stupid people in large groups. Now that's true, all right? You find a gym once in a while, like this one. If you lend someone $20 and never see him again, it was probably worth it. (laughs) Or this one. Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach him how to fish and he'll sit in a boat and drink beer all day. It's also true. So we've been diving into the Proverbs, God's wisdom written down by Solomon. But here's the crazy thing. You can't even look to Solomon's life to pattern your life after wisdom because much of what Solomon wrote down of God's wisdom, he didn't follow all the time. Isn't that crazy? In fact, if you trace Solomon's life, you know, in the early years of his developing wisdom, you know, early years, love was in the air, like in many of us. And Solomon wrote what's called the Song of Solomon, wisdom about committed marital sexual love. And in the Song of Solomon, you get all the passion and fire of a cheap romance novel. Not really, but probably for little Jewish boys, it felt that way. <laughs> but it, it's, it's graphically about uh, the beauty of this gift from God of marital sexual love, including wise compliments that, that Solomon would give his wife. Like your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Or this one, your nose is the Tower of Lebanon. Try that on your next date, guys. See see how that goes. So some wisdom has to be contextualized, right? But I believe it's the wisdom of God that he put a book in the Bible about the beauty of marital sexual love because it's a gift from God. Now, it's a reminder, too, that we can wrongly use and abuse it and hurt each other. And so the Song of Solomon reminds us that wisdom is seeking God even in the use of our sexuality. Then that was the early years. In the middle years of Solomon's life, he ruled over the golden age of Israel. This is the time when all the promises of God started to come true. God said, if you will love me and follow me, I will bless you. And it says in that day, silver was as common as stones in Jerusalem. Trade flourished between Israel and the other nations. Uh, Solomon sent ships to the Orient to find the most exotic animals, built the most exotic zoo in Solomon's great palace. The, the uh, crowning achievement uh, of Solomon's reign was the, Solomon's temple 
there in Jerusalem. In fact, the Wailing Wall today is all that's left of Solomon's temple. But this was the time when the Proverbs was written as well. But you're not going to believe what happened after that. Or maybe you will, (laughs) because it's actually pretty common to human history, and it's even common to professing Christians. With God's abundant blessing, you would expect that Solomon would just be grateful and always want to follow God, but it's not what happened. And that's not what usually happens, unfortunately. You know, and, and we, we, say, we say to God, God, if you will just do this thing for me, just bless me, I promise I will be grateful and I'll follow you forever. But human history tells us that's not our propensity. And so Solomon, by the end of his reign, had squandered it all away. The poet lover who wrote about the God-given beauty of marital sexual love broke every record of promiscuity. This, this wise man who wrote the Proverbs broke almost every one of them with an extravagance that would make Hugh Hefner and Hemingway gawk. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Now what's interesting about Ecclesiastes, this is Solomon's hedonistic experiment with the human wisdom of how to get the most out of life. And the key is everything under the sun. He did everything under the sun, leaving God out of it to try to get the most out of life. And at the end of his experiment, after all this, a thousand sex partners, a PhD of learning, built an empire, amassed toys and treasures, at the end, here's his conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12, meaningless. He says that 33 times in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, Solomon. Everything is meaningless. So here's the conclusion of the matter. Don't leave God out. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. See, there is a wisdom of of the world that tells us how to get the most out of life, and you're free to try it. God gives you that freedom, but he gives you a warning. In the end, you're going to find it's meaningless. I went to a funeral of of a friend this last week, and I was hit again by how quickly life just passes by. But even more, how quickly all of our friends end up just moving on with life. It kind of struck me that really the only thing that's left of our lives in the end is not even, you know, what people say about us. It's what God says about us and what God says about how we impacted other human beings. Love God, love people. That's what Jesus said, summed it all up. Everything else is commentary. In the end, it's not what you say, but how you live that tells whose disciple you really were. So what is your life telling you right now? Because there's always feedback. We can always gain wisdom and and change, but we have to listen to our lives. So in the end, Solomon comes all the way back to where he started. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, as I said in week one, this isn't fear of God like in punishment. It's not fear of God because he's angry. This is a different kind of fear. And in fact, Hebrew parallelism in the Old Testament will take one statement and put another right behind it, but they mean the same things. And so this is how the Bible defines the fear of God as first awe and reverence. It says in Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Same thing. 
It means following his ways. Psalm 128, blessed are those who fear the Lord who walk in his ways. Same thing. It means putting our hope in God's love, it says in Psalm 33. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love. So it says true wisdom for living starts when we put our maker above all other fears. All other fears about other people's opinions or what other people think or how we'll stack up against others. You know, if you think about it, if my car isn't running right, the wisest place to go to figure out how to make it run is the manufacturer, right? Is, is someone who knows how it, the parts work. If you, if you have a computer program that's not working right, the best place to go is to the company who wrote the code. And it's true in wisdom for living. The best place to go to find out how to truly live is the maker. And, and the amazing news is that God is with us to help us if we'll let him. The creator will actually move in and do life with you to guide you into wisdom if we're willing. And that's why Jesus came. That's who Jesus was, wisdom. In fact, Isaiah forecasted uh, about the coming Messiah 700 years before Jesus came and claimed this to be Messiah. In Isaiah 11, he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And then the New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, God has united you with Christ Jesus when you just turn your heart and open it up to his forgiveness. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and freed us from sin or freed us from the consequences of sin. See, if you want to know wisdom, learn how to live from Jesus. Follow him. Be his disciple. Apprentice under him. Study his life and teachings and ways. I mean, think about it. He died on a cross for you in your place. No one else would do that. He did to make you and me and all willing people right with God. You know, God made us like cars to run on his fuel, of staying connected to the very source. He made us for loving relationship with himself. And that's why Jesus experienced not only physical death, but spiritual death on the cross. Spiritual death means separation from God. He paid for all our debts, all our sins, so that we can turn our hearts back. And that's all God requires to be reunited to the source of life and love and wisdom itself. And that's how you learn to live wisely. First, reconnecting to wisdom himself and then daily choosing to grow in following wisdom's ways. Jesus claimed to reveal God. Not all there is to, to God, but a three-dimensional representation of the heart and character of God. Now, that trips people up today. It tripped people up back in Jesus' day. Look at this. Matthew 13, it says, Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom? And these miraculous powers, they ask. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't his sisters here with us? Jesus taught with a wisdom and authority that he claimed was from God. And then he demonstrated God's authority in doing miraculous things. Yet he was fully human. It's a mystery. Fully God, but fully human. 
And, and they knew his family. They knew his brothers and sisters. And, and he was an ordinary, humble, poor carpenter until the last three and a half years of his life. But those last three and a half years, he did things only God could do. Matthew 9, 2. Some people brought Jesus, a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? As a matter of fact, yes. (laughs) Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man, which is a term for Messiah, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. The man jumped up and went home and fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen. Jesus did miraculous things demonstrating his authority. And not only do the 27, uh, the, the men who, and women who wrote uh, uh, and were eyewitnesses of him in the New Testament, But Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian who lived in Jesus' day, also writes this. Now there arose about this time a source of further trouble in one Jesus, a wise man who performed surprising works, a teacher of men who gladly welcomed strange things. He didn't believe in Jesus. He led many Jews and many Gentiles away. He was the so-called Messiah. Pilate condemned him to the cross. Joseph Josephus reports what was common knowledge. Jesus was a wise teacher. He did these surprising, miraculous deeds. He was crucified on charges of blasphemy for claiming to be Messiah, God's self-revelation. And Jesus taught with this incredible wisdom that common people were attracted to. In fact, it says this, at one time he gets in a boat and he goes across the Sea of Galilee and in Mark 6 it says, many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's like he's a rock star. They're running to meet him, right? And when Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, so he began teaching them many things. And apparently the crowd was like 10 to 15,000 people running all morning. Can you imagine running all morning uh, to sit there and listen all day? And they were sitting on rocky soil. They didn't have little comfy little seats that you did. You do, right? And it says that they stayed all day and didn't have lunch and didn't have dinner. And yet they, they listened. That's miraculous. I mean, you know how grumpy people get when they're hungry, right? I can barely keep, get you to keep with me for 30 minutes. And I have to let you bring coffee and food into the auditorium. <laughs> Clearly, there was something different about Jesus' teaching. But Jesus was not loved by all. In fact, the people he clashed most with were the pride-filled religious leaders who were threatened by Jesus' denouncement of their self-centered, money-hungry, power-hungry ways that had no love or mercy or compassion for people. And he told them, you burden people with your religious rules, you pride yourself in being good, but your hearts are truly far from God. See, they weren't really seeking God or his wisdom. They were using God to do what they wanted. And that's why even seeing him do the miraculous, they said, oh, he's a sorcerer and he's doing it by demonic power. And so Jesus says in John 8, I have no demon in me. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. And he's not talking about just physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death. He's talking about a wisdom from God 
where God makes us right with him and we begin to live an eternal quality of life starting now, but it lasts forever. And remember Christmas, I showed you how these official writings of these religious leaders, the Talmud record, they record that they had Jesus killed for sorcery and leading Israel astray. They couldn't deny that he was doing these miraculous things, so they, they called it demonic and got rid of him. You know, it's a good question. When God's ways start to get in the way of what we want, do we submit ourselves to him or do we get rid of him? Do we just kind of push him away in our minds and go on about what we want? Because that's exactly what they were doing. Or do we trust him and submit ourselves to his wisdom about how life really works best for our sakes? If you're seeking wisdom, why wouldn't you follow Jesus? Ponder that. Are you his disciple? Are you learning from him and how to live? What does your life show the evidence of? And if it's not, why not? You know, I think one of the reasons that many don't truly follow Jesus, even professing Christians, is because his wisdom clashes with the wisdom of the world, and we haven't stopped to realize who we've apprenticed under. And it's really the wisdom of the world, and we're not willing to let go of it. And I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, if any of you want to be my followers, you must forget about yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll destroy it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? See, Jesus is pointing out the great paradox of life, that when we focus on ourselves and, and only on what we think will bring us happiness, which, by the way, is the world's wisdom, right? We actually end up losing the very thing we were trying to gain. In the end, meaningless, Solomon said. So Jesus says the solution, though, is to take up your cross in another place. He says daily. Now, when we hear that, that doesn't mean put on cross jewelry daily, okay? That doesn't mean just identify with Jesus daily. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, take on some burden like, oh, my cross is my boss. I just have to bear my boss. No. No, his disciples every day walked out of Jerusalem and saw men and women hanging to their death on a cross. To take up your cross daily meant to die daily. Now, how does that sound? That Jesus' wisdom is die daily. It's absurd, right? Shocking. And he's trying to shock you. He's trying to shock you into realizing a spiritual law as real as gravity. That when you center your life on yourself, you lose it. But when you learn to die daily to self at the center, to live for something bigger, God at the center, and others, you find the very life you were longing for in all those other things. There's a story of a Navy warship that was headed through the fog one night and sees a light off in the distance that's, that's closing in and um, kept heading on, on course and the light was getting bigger and brighter and on a collision course. And just then, they heard a voice come over the radio saying, attention, calling vessel traveling at 18 knots at 220 degrees, adjust course 30 degrees immediately. The captain got on the radio and said, this is the vessel headed at 220 degrees. You adjust course 30 degrees. Negative, captain, adjust course quickly, the radio guy responded. I'm an admiral in the U.S. 
Navy. To whom am I speaking? The voice came back, I'm an ensign in the U.S. Coast Guard. The captain, now irritated, replied, I outrank you. We are a U.S. Navy warship. I command you to adjust course 30 degrees immediately. Sorry, sir, we can't do that, the ensign replied. We're a lighthouse. (laughs) Some things are bigger than we are. Some things transcend us. God transcends us. And when we're willing to adjust our lives to his reality, it goes well for us. But when we insist on our reality apart from his, you end up eventually crashing your boat and some sink. You know, psychologist and author Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud says this, I would have to say that one question hovers above all others in importance of a person's functioning in life, and it's the question, are you God or not? And he says, you know, on the, on the surface, the question sounds silly. Of co- Everybody can check the right box. Of course I'm not God. He said, but if you follow people around, even many professing Christians, and you just observe their lives, he said, they go about acting like they're God, acting as if the whole world and everyone and everything is supposed to revolve around their plans. And they're all about building their little kingdom, their little household or company or bank account or relationships or interests. And by the way, it's our culture's wisdom, right? I mean, we have t-shirts that say, it's all about me. Joke? Not really. Uh, We have uh, magazines called Self. We have radio TV wisdom that says, look out for number one. I belong to me. Not getting what you want? Leave. There's nothing bigger than you. Not God, not marriage, not parenting, not church, not society, not loyalty, nothing. But the problem with this self-centered wisdom is, in the end, it leads to a meaningless life. But to let go of self at the center, well, that feels like dying, (laughs) but it's wisdom. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is saying there's some things that appear that seem like they will give you life, but in reality, they take away the life you're after. But he came to give you the fullest, most meaningful life possible. See, God, that's always been God's desire, to give you good things. God takes great pleasure in your fulfillment. And when we reconnect to him by his spirit, he wants to lead us to die daily to those ordinary, self-centered thoughts and actions that try to get life to revolve all around me. Because as we do, we actually start to gain the very life we were thinking we would get that way. So how do we do this? Well, it all starts with a simple prayer of faith, of willingness to let God be God. That's what we're celebrating today in in baptism. You know, the good news that Jesus brought is that you don't have to be perfect at wise living to be made right with God. Isn't that great news? That's, That's a growing process, like a little child growing up into a mature adult. It takes a lifetime. But the only requirement to be made right with God is to give up pretending that you're perfect or that you're in control or that you're good enough because that's all about playing God. If we're honest, we know we're not. And yet God has already paid the price to forgive us and reestablish us into loving relationship that then we might walk with him into wisdom 
Do you want that? Do you want to know that you're right with God? Just tell him. I want what Jesus did to count for me. I want your forgiveness. You come be God, I can't. That's all he requires. And then we mark that with baptism. Jesus said this in Matthew 28, 18. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples or apprentices of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, today, as people go down into the water, they are publicly declaring that Jesus died on my behalf. He wasn't ashamed to hang on a cross identifying with me to pay for my wrongs. And I'm not ashamed to identify with him. When he was buried, it should have been me being buried. And you go down into the water signifying that. And when they come up out of the water, they're basically saying, and I believe that by God's power, he was raised to new life, and I too will be raised to new life and washed clean of all my wrongs, past, present, and even future. Why? So that I can walk with God like a little child with a good parent growing up to learn wisdom over time. You know, I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized uh, as an adult, maybe you were as a, as a child, but that was really your parents' decision. Deciding as an adult really confirms their decision, that you're deciding. I have, I have told God in my heart that I want his forgiveness and leadership. And this is a public symbol of that. And by the way, it's not a church ceremony. It's God's ceremony of adoption. I'm convinced. You know, he says that when one person turns their heart back to God, all of heaven celebrates. And I'm convinced when someone gets baptized that he's saying to all heaven, look, my adopted child, love wins again. And it's a great celebration in heaven. And that's why we celebrate with people here on earth. You know, as we sing this last song, maybe God's been tugging on your heart to go public with your faith. Or maybe you've never made the decision to open your heart to Christ. I'll lead you in a prayer in just a second. And if he's tugging on your heart, get baptized today. You don't even need any different clothes than what you're wearing right now. We have towels that you can take home with you. Don't let anything stand in your way if God's doing something in your heart. And we have prayer counselors over here that would love to just meet with you and, and talk with you and pray with you. And then if you have uh, been baptized and, you know, I want to encourage you to stick around after the service and cheer these people on. You know, cheer on with heaven. And as you watch this, remember why Christ died for you. You know, it wasn't just to get you to heaven one day. It's so that you would learn to love and trust him and let him guide you into wisdom. So as we sing this song, let's commit in 2018 that we're going to be people who follow his way of wisdom.